How many times when you read the scripture, especially the gospels, are you confronted by these curious questions, these paradoxes that, that don't seem always to make sense the first time you look at them? I'll tell you one question as we continue moving through Mark chapter 8, as we are going through this wonderful gospel together. One of the first questions that confronts me in Mark chapter 8 is the fact that maybe a deja vu, haven't we seen this before? Jesus is feeding 4,000 people. You say, wait a second. Wasn't it just two chapters ago that we saw him feed 5,000 people? Oh, just men, right? It could have been 15 or 20,000 people when you're adding in the women and the children. Again, it's so hard for us even to, to put those numbers in our mind. If you were to go to the Target Center, the home of the Minnesota Timberwolves, that seats about 19,000 people if you've ever been in that building. You can imagine a, a crowd that large being fed Miraculous. He sees and said, well, we've seen that, and now we just read this morning about the feeding of the 4,000, at least likely, again, men. It could have been many more. And the thing that should stand out to us is so surprising is his disciples. Jesus says, well, I have compassion on these. We need to send them. Uh, we need to make sure to feed them. If I send them away fasting, they'll faint by the way. And how do his disciples answer him? From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Huh, guys? I wonder. Could it have been the guy who just fed fifteen or 20,000? You think that guy? You say, what is, what is going on with these guys? I sometimes wonder, it's just a little bit of speculation, but do you ever wonder whether Mark is recording the words of one or two of them? Oh man, what are we going to do with all these people who don't have food? And the rest of them kind of look at him and say, do you, do you remember what happened with the 5,000? But there's something else that's very unique about this. It's that when we come through verse 10, and I've intentionally put these passages together because Mark has them together. Look at verse 11. Jesus has just left them and come into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees, verse 11 says, came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him or testing him. They say, we want you to show us a miraculous sign. And don't you just immediately stop and say, where have you guys been? What do you think he's been doing for the last well over a year in his Galilean ministry? Making deaf people to hear, making lepers to be cleansed, casting demons out of completely impossible cases, doing miracles, even feeding of the 5,000 that were so powerful that the Pharisees who saw them said, well, he must be a, have a demonic force. It must be from Beelzebub himself. And now they have the gall to come to Jesus and say, show us a sign from heaven. You say, what's going on here? 
Well, there's something here, I think, as I've combined these, these two accounts together that I think is very telling. We see something of Jesus here in chapter 8, again, that is connected to his compassion, this overflowing compassion that he had, and then on, and that is willing to turn seven loaves and a few small fishes into provision for thousands. And on the other hand, we see his response to the Pharisees who are coming to him and they're testing him. They're saying, show us a sign from heaven. They're arguing with him. And notice what Jesus says in verse 12. Why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily or truly, I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them. To one group of people, he is willing to have his compassion flow out in miraculous, creative works. And to another people, he says, to another group of people, he says, you get nothing. And he leaves. What Mark has been doing through this entire book is revealing God to us. That's what he's been doing. Jesus is God in human form. And Jesus shows us who God is and what he is like. And so Mark has been revealing the very character of God to us as we see Jesus painted on the canvas of this gospel. And in it, Mark is trying to show us two things. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the most compassionate Savior that you can possibly imagine. And at the very same time, he is the most set-apart and sovereign king that you can possibly imagine. And in these two accounts shown back-to-back, -back, a compassionate savior, an entirely sovereign king, may we come this morning and worship our compassionate savior and bow before our sovereign king. The title of the message this morning is A Savior and a King. A Savior and a King. And let's look at these two passages side by side to see Jesus the compassionate Savior, to see Jesus the sovereign King. First of all, let's look at Jesus the compassionate Savior. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, let's try to unpack this a little bit. Verse 1 starts, in those days. In which days? Well, where were we last week? Remember last week, Jesus had left the northwestern region of Tyre and Sidon on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea outside the boundaries of historical Israel. And he had taken a somewhat circuitous path back down to the Sea of Galilee region. But now he was not on the north and western side of the lake where Capernaum was and the area where he had done a lot of his Galilean ministry. He was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And we talked about that last week as being a Syrian region of ten cities. 
Decapolis literally means 10 cities. So Jesus was in a predominantly Gentile area. There were Jews there, but it was predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. And we see him expressing his great compassion toward a man who was deaf and who had, because of his deafness, a speech impediment. And Jesus, as he loved to do, drew out faith in this man, this man who could not communicate normally, who could not hear. Jesus brings him aside from the crowd, and he goes through this kind of sign language with him, focusing this man's attention on Jesus as the Savior and expressing, putting his fingers in this man's ear, touching his tongue, and communicating to him, I am the one who will be healing you. Sighing deeply, expressing to this man as he looks toward heaven, as Jesus looks toward heaven, that your cure is from heaven. And there's a God up there who cares deeply about you, who sighs over your condition and then heals him. Jesus loved drawing faith out of people. It's in that context that Mark says, in those days... The days when Jesus apparently is in Decapolis, is in a largely Gentile region. And what's he doing with this multitude for three days? He wasn't, he wasn't, I can tell you, playing a game. He was teaching. That's what he always did. A multitude had come into an uh, apparently a deserted area. Jesus was teaching them there. And they had been there for three days. And now their food source was exhausted. Their food source was gone. And so Jesus now says, I have compassion on them because they have now been with me. They have nothing to eat. And notice what he says in verse 3. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers or different of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Now, what a remarkable thing. But can we say entirely human? In one sense, it seems hard for us to believe. In fact, if you were to, to uh, look at critics of the inspiration of the Bible, they would say, oh, this, this isn't telling a different story than the feeding of the 5,000. It's just telling the same story. They just recounted it two different ways. Well, it's nonsense. Because all the details are different. The 5,000 was to a Gentile crowd, in an or excuse me, a Jewish crowd largely, in an entirely different region. This one is in a to a Gentile crowd in a different region altogether. In the other passage, we see 5,000 men. Here, we see 4,000. There, we see five loaves and two fish. Here, we see seven loaves and some different number of fish. And... and if the clincher of it should be that if we go on only a few different, a few verses into chapter 8, look at verse 19. Jesus is speaking. He says, when I broke the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. Jesus is distinguishing among them. These are clearly two different incidents. So how do we explain the disciples asking Jesus, how are we going to do this? Well, there's a couple different ways we can explain it. One could be truly they were just saying, Jesus, we're leaving this up to you. How are we going to feed them, Jesus? We know you can. That's one way potentially you could interpret what they're saying. 
But the other way is actually, I think, a lot more human and a lot more, a lot more real, relevant to us if we were to honestly admit it. How many times has God come through for you powerfully in a particular situation, and then a year or five years or ten years later, the same kind of situation comes up again, and you find yourself just as worried as you were before? It's like you have some health condition that God delivered you from, you, some diagnosis, and suddenly you've been freed from it. And then you say, thank you, Lord, this was you. What a wonderful miracle you wrought on my behalf. And then six months later or a year later, the phone rings, and it's a doctor, and you say, oh, no. What are, I can't believe this. We forget. We don't forget that God has done things, but what we, though we do sometimes. I'm not saying we don't, but what I'm saying is, a lot of times we, we may remember intellectually what God does, but it doesn't get down into our hearts to change the way we feel and the way we respond. And so these disciples undoubtedly probably remembered what Jesus had done, but now they're confronted with a new problem, a new set of circumstances, and they're, they're kind of cast back to the same point. Jesus, what are we going to do about this? It I just strikes me as so natural and so human to all of our characters. In verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. Don't miss that. And gave thanks and broke and gave to his disciples to set before them. Why is there a habit in many Christian families about praying and giving thanks to God before they eat? Well, in one sense, because Jesus gave us that example. He gave thanks. We read in, uh, of Paul in 1 Timothy. We read that every creature of God, every creation, every animal that God has made is good and not to be refused. It does not need to be refused from, uh, from, from being eaten if it is received with what? Thanksgiving. There's a thanksgiving that is right when we sit down to partake of the blessings that God has given us in food. Jesus gave us this example. He, he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave to his disciples, and they did set them before the people. Verse 7, and they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left, seven baskets, and they that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. This would have been on the other side, now back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Friends, notice here the creative power of Jesus connected to his compassion. The word here when Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude, we've talked about this word before, it's about feeling things deeply at your gut. You know when you just feel something so powerfully in the pit of your stomach, this is what Jesus felt. He's saying, I in touch to my deepest essence about the hunger that these people are experiencing. And notice what he says, if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way. They're not even going to be able to make it back home. And here the Savior of mankind is expressing his compassion for whom? A largely Gentile crowd. Not even his predominantly Jewish crowd that he had been ministering to before in Galilee. This is someone who simply overflows in love for the needs of people. 
And that's what we see here in one who is willing to exercise his creation power on their behalf simply to meet their needs. And then what? Send them away. Send them away. He didn't say to everyone, now follow me. Now let's have a big crowd, a bigger church, if you will, a bigger gathering. No, he sent them away. This was an expression of his compassion. And then we see not just here the needs of the hungry crowd that show the, the Savior, the compassionate Savior. Now notice the demands of the hostile Pharisees, the sovereign king. And the Pharisees came forth when he's now at the other side of the sea. And you could almost imagine that they're waiting for him, that they're ready to try to test him and trip him up. And they began to question with him, to debate with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him or testing him. Now what's going on here? These Pharisees we've seen have already been challenging and trying to get at Jesus and trying to discredit his ministry over and over. Why do you think they're asking for a sign from heaven? Well, we see here they're testing him. They're putting him to a test. Is that word means to tempt or as uh, it's also used to test. What they're saying is this, I think. They probably would have been saying something like this. Jesus, we need an unambiguous miracle to show all of us that you are a true prophet of God. Now, set aside the fact that that's what Jesus had been doing over and over and over again. It also shows you that these Pharisees had no intent of being convinced You know this kind of person. You've run into them in work or in your neighborhood or at school. It's the kind of person who wants to argue not to learn, but simply to argue to argue. And there's no hope of convincing them of anything because their mind is already made up. Their sole job is to try to discredit you. There's no intention of actually coming in good faith. And this is exactly where these Pharisees were. Do you think honestly that if Jesus had called down a miraculous sign from heaven, these Pharisees would have said, okay, we get it. You're the Messiah. We're following you. Of course not. Their minds were entirely made up. Now let me ask you this. Can you think of any example in the Old Testament when a prophet of God called down a sign from heaven. Can you think of any? Well, we could go back to Joshua, a man who commanded the sun to stand still in the sky, and it did. How's that for a miraculous sign from heaven? Maybe some of you thought of Samuel the prophet when the the people of Israel said, we don't want God to reign over us as our sovereign king in the hand, as through judges, we want a king of our own. And Samuel said to the people of Israel, you have done a grievous thing. This is a sin before God. This is not right. And he said, I'll show you. And he called down thunder and rain from heaven as a sign to them in the middle of wheat harvest, completely unexpected, and the people trembled. They said, you're right, we have sinned a great sin. Maybe some of you remember Elijah. 
Elijah saying to the people of Israel, how long are you going to, to, to halt between two different opinions? If God's God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And the sign coming down from heaven, the fire that devoured the wood offering, the burnt offering that was there, that was a sign from heaven. Or even Isaiah, you remember the prophet, to Hezekiah the king. Hezekiah the king, God had told Hezekiah, you will be healed of this disease that appeared to be to be terminal. You're going to die from it. God says you're healed and then gives him a sign that the sundial they used to, to turn, tell time went back in the sun went back in that sundial. Signs from heaven and perhaps the Pharisees were challenging him. Look at all these Old Testament signs that came directly from heaven. If you're a prophet, if you're sent from God, you do it. Now Jesus absolutely had the authority to do that. The point is this. Jesus was going to give them no sign. He was going to give no sign to people who were already convinced and were simply coming against him in bad faith. He had no time for those who were simply looking to dispute or to argue. He had all the time in the world for those who were suffering and truly in need and no time whatsoever, if you will, for those who were simply coming to dispute Notice what he says. Notice what Mark records for us in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. What a word. The idea here is that his whole chest was heaving in a sigh. I want you to think about this. Why is Mark recording this? Because he wants to show us again and again that Jesus was a man who felt things deeply. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is someone who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's touched. And in the same way, Jesus has compassion overflowing to this crowd who is desperately hungry and needs his sustenance. And then on the other hand, there are these Pharisees who are coming to him in bad faith and his chest is heaving with a sigh of grief, of brokenness, undoubtedly of moral indignation at their blindness. These people who had seen so much and yet are convinced and seeking to discredit him. And he says, why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign, no miraculous kind of heavenly sign given to them when I've already been showing them over and over the character of God in his compassion and the creation power of God in his meeting the needs of the people who he made, and who Jesus would soon die for. Look at verse 13. And he left them, and entering into the ship, again departed to the other side. It's a very powerful word that's used here in the Greek to say that, that he left them. It's the idea of just being released from them. It's a, it's, it's, it's a word, as I understand it, could also be used and is used to refer to a man divorcing his wife. It is a kind of conclusive leaving. And commentators point out that this is a unique place in the Gospel of Mark because it is here that Jesus' public ministry in Galilee effectively comes to an end. 
He comes back to Galilee a, a chapter later, but he says, shh, he doesn't want anyone to know. He comes back almost, as it were, privately. It is as if here the cold and dead hearts of the Pharisees, the blindness of their spiritual eyes to recognize who he is with all of the conclusive proofs that he has given to them, causes our Lord to turn and leave. And in a sense, this chapter is closed of the Galilean ministry that he has in his home area. What a sobering thing. But I wanted, again, as we close here this morning, bring these two perspectives together. What do we take from these two stories? The first thing we take is something about Jesus, who is the sovereign king. You see, what were the Pharisees, in essence, saying to Jesus? They were saying, we might believe you, if you come to us, on whose terms? My terms. If you come and give me the proof that I demand, they put him to the test. And resolutely, Jesus says to them, I'm sorry, but you don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on mine, because I in the king. And when Jesus was confronted with these hard-hearted people who always were testing, always were poking, always were prodding in bad faith, Jesus says to them, I have no time for that kind of bad faith. There's a, a saying, the very helpful preacher, Alistair Begg, um, uh, related once, and it goes something like this. It said, Jesus condescends to fill big brains, but not big heads. I like that. Jesus condescends to fill big brains, but not big heads. Do you know, in almost every age, some of the most brilliant minds of that age have been committed followers of Christ and have seen that their reasonable faith has been supported by following Christ. But those who come to him with big heads, in pride, in arrogance, in stubbornness, Jesus sends away. Because ultimately when you come to a king, there's only one way to come on your knees. There's only one way to come, bowing. It is why God says that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 81. Listen to what these words of God in, in the Old Testament. He says, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. He is a compassionate God who is willing to overflow in grace toward his people. But then listen to what he says in verse 11. But my people would not hearken to my voice and Israel would none of me. They weren't willing to listen in their pride and their stubbornness. And so what does he say? So I gave them up under their own heart's lust, their own heart's desire, and they walked in their own counsels. Do you want to follow your own desires, your own counsels? Do you want to approach God in pride and stubbornness? Then his response will be to you, go ahead. But you will not receive of my grace. You will not see my power on your behalf. 
And there's something about this for us as well, friends, that we should take very seriously in our own Christian lives and in our ministry. There is an uncompromising nature to those who will truly preach the gospel and stand on the inerrancy and the sufficiency of this book. That we say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And we say, even so, Lord, and we stand on that truth. We stand on the uncompromising truth that as the name of this church means, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. There is only one gate. There is only one way. It is only through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have hope in this life and the next. And we stand uncompromisingly on that with great compassion and great love for all, but ultimately in humility and in honor for our king, the sovereign king who is Lord of all. And there's also this. Jesus was the one who told his followers, us included, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. We are not looking merely for arguments. We're not looking for mere disputes with those who are people in bad faith who have already made up their mind and are simply trying to tangle us. No, we've got more work to do than simply to waste our time with that. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. He says, you're going to run into people who just want to argue. He says, from such, withdraw thyself. From such, turn away. We're not going to, if you will, if you will excuse me, waste our time in mere debate clubs. In mere arguments, our job is to proclaim the uncompromising truth of God's word that there is a sovereign king before whom every knee must bow, either today in this life or one day in the next. Every knee will bow. Friends, have you submitted to the sovereign king today? Have you embraced him on his terms, not on yours? Have you come to him with a big head today? Or are you willing to humble yourself and accept him as your king this morning? But secondly, and where I want to close this morning, is we don't just see the heart of this sovereign king, but we see the heart of the Savior as well. I want us to just reflect for a moment on his unmatched compassion. This is what Mark has been communicating to us over and over. In Mark chapter 1, we learn of Jesus being, quote, moved with compassion. We see in Mark chapter 5 to the gathering demoniac, Jesus tells him, go home and tell everyone what compassion the Lord had on you. Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus coming out and seeing much people and again being moved with compassion toward them. Mark is telling us something about the heart of Jesus, what the heart of Jesus feels. And it's something that all of us should make sure that we are fully grounded in this morning. Do you understand that Jesus feels with your difficulties today? That Jesus feels a human compassion really a divine compassion for everything that you're going through this morning. Never doubt that. Never turn away in a kind of mistrust of whether Jesus actually deeply, deeply feels what you are going through in your sufferings right now. Because that is what encourages you to go to him right now 
as your merciful high priest. To go to him in prayer, casting all your burdens before him. We sing that song, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Do you feel that about Jesus, that you have? What a friend who feels deeply with everything that you feel. What a savior. But friend, there's something also about this that we are intended to see. It is intended to be how we feel. Why is Mark communicating to us about the compassion of Jesus? Because he's telling us something about what a Christ-like human is. A Christ-like human is someone who feels deeply just like Jesus did. For Jews, for Gentiles, for those that are dealing with physical suffering, with human disability, to those dealing with a heavy burden of sin, who have been trapped by their own desires and lusts into a position they never could have imagined they would be in. He felt deeply to the core of his being. And I just want, I just want us to really wrestle with this for just a moment. Mark was writing to people who were Gentiles, who were people who would have come out of a pagan background. Friends, do you know what historians tell us? They tell us that mercy and compassion was not a virtue in the pagan world. Do you know that in the pagan world, again, you can, you can look at this up, do you know there were no such thing as hospitals in the pagan world? Compassion was frowned on. Mercy was frowned on. The idea that there was a God in heaven who overflowed in compassion through a suffering servant, the Son of God who came to earth and take people's difficulties on himself would have been an offense to many pagans. No, that can't be God. But it is. And in fact, if you were to track the history of the early church, you would see that one of the most powerful testimonies to the entire world was the compassion of Christians. In fact, you can read of this. I was reading of a book uh, by a man who at the time was an agnostic, and he was trying to explain the explosive spread of Christianity through the early world. How could Christianity displace all these other pagan religions to become the world's dominant faith? And this was a man who didn't believe in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit as we do. But one thing that he could pin his finger on is he said, the way Christians loved. It's really actually quite remarkable. Listen to what one historian says. The old Roman world was a world without charity. This is how one Christian writer describes in the third century people who were suffering in that day, how they were treated. He said, the pagans thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends and cast the sufferers out upon the public roads, half dead, and left them unburied and treated them with utter contempt when they died. In fact, even one secular historian at a time of plague wrote this. People were afraid to visit one another, and they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. And now the Christian compassion, the ethic of compassion shown by Jesus is revealed. Listen to what 
Again, one Christian writer says in this time of plague, he says, many of our brethren in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness did not spare themselves, but kept by each other and visited the sick without thought of their own peril and ministered to them assiduously and treated them for their healing in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this matter the result of great piety and strong faith. And he said, it seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Now, friends, if you lived in a world where people, the sick, were cast away to die, where there was absolutely no respect for those who had died, and then you see the unleashing of this extraordinary divine compassion for those, as, as, as the pagans of that day recognized, the Christians were not only taking care of their own poor and sick, they were taking care of the poor and sick of the world, of the pagans. In fact, the last pagan emperor, a man named Julian, actually wrote, we have a letter recorded to a pagan priest, and listen to how he describes what was going on. He says, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the pagan priests, the impious Galileans, who do you think those are? The impious Galileans, the Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. Julian, the emperor, is looking at this as, oh, this is just self-motivated, right? But he couldn't deny that they were doing it. Now listen to what he says. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And the Christians step in and begin ministering to the needs of the poor wherever they go. What am I saying? It's this. The compassion of Jesus Christ for the needs of those who are suffering must, not should, must be seen in us, must the heart of Jesus Christ to feel deeply the needs of those who surround us must be felt among us. And friends, it's beyond the scope of this message to say exactly how we should or should not treat everyone we come in contact with or, or what is our, whether there are any limits to the generosity that we can share. Of course there are limits, but it's simply this do we experience the compassion of Jesus Christ that would have been so unique in that day and even to this day, indeed, it is. Will you turn over for just one moment to 1 John chapter 3? 1 John chapter 3. This ethic of the Christian, this ethic of Scripture is so profound that we see John himself one who knew personally our Lord speaking of this. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. How do we know the love of God? Because he gave his life for us. That's how much he loved us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren for our fellow Christians. We 
ought to lay down. We have a moral obligation. Then listen to verse 17. But whoso has this world's good, in other words, someone who has material resources, and sees his brother, his Christian brother or sister, have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, closes the door to that feeling, that that loving compassion, how dwells the love of God in him? John is mystified. He says, if you have material resources and there is your brother or sister who is languishing and you slam the door of compassion to your heart and say effectively, good luck, I'm not feeling anything. He says, how can you say the love of God dwells in you? Notice what he then goes on to close, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say that you love. Do it. Live it out. Do it truly and sincerely. Friends, let's bring these two strands together again just as we close. We have a Savior who is a king. And that means we come on his terms and bow before him. But we have a king who is a Savior who has an unmatched capacity of compassion and love for the people that he made. And that means we stand resolutely on his truth as a king. And it means we love selflessly, reflecting his character as a savior for those who are in need, starting first closest to us and extending beyond as God gives us opportunity. Friends, are you today worshiping our King and our Savior.